Good morning, Chapel family. We are so glad that you're with us today. Our prayer is that these songs would minister to your heart, that they would um, be a balm to your soul, and that they would encourage you, uh, whatever you're facing. So please worship with us. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me Are you hurting? 
And are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, Jesus is calling. And have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. And oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Leave your sorrows, regrets, and mistakes. Come today, there's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling. Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy. From the ashes a new life is born. Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Sing, Oh, what a Savior! Oh, what a Savior! Isn't He one?
Bear your cross. Bear your cross as you wait for the crown. Tell the world of the treasure you found. Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Yes, Lord, this morning we give you praise and glory and honor. We thank you that you came to earth to die for us, to be the sacrifice that we needed for our sins. Jesus, we thank you this morning that you are alive, that you are not dead, that we're singing and praising a God who hears and listens and actively moves. We thank you, God, for your word. We ask that you would use Pastor Tim this morning to be your mouthpiece and ask you to help us to listen from where we're at. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning, Chapel family, and a special welcome to those of you that are joining as guests uh, watching our service online this morning. We just want to thank you for, uh, for being with us and just pray that our time of uh, worship and the word together would be a deep encouragement to your heart. I want to just take a moment to express gratitude to our church family. Uh, we mentioned uh, probably a little over a month ago that we had uh, just some various needs within our church family uh, in regards to benevolence, uh, some loss of jobs, uh, just various circumstances that have caused financial hardship. It has been a real encouragement to our hearts to see what happened. I think about two weeks ago we sent out an email saying the needs are met. Uh, we'll let you know if there are more coming. So I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, for the encouragement that that's been to my heart as we have sought to uh, reach out and to meet needs of people uh, within our community. God has blessed in an abundant way with that, so we wanted to thank you. Um, also wanted to encourage you to, to go to the chapel website and look at the opportunities that are present during the week. There are a number of Bible studies that are being done online with Zoom. Uh, there are a couple of prayer meetings that are taking place. So we want to encourage you while we're in this season of separation to also take time to uh, be together. Take advantage of the opportunities that are present. Pursue vital relationships, even in this context. Get together in smaller groups and uh, spend some time in prayer. Spend some time in the study of God's word. Just want to deeply encourage you not to totally isolate. I want to lead us in prayer before we turn to God's word this morning. Father, we are thankful for the privilege that we have uh, on a regular basis on Sundays to study uh, your word, and to be challenged, exhorted, confronted, and encouraged by it. So we trust that as we uh, open your truth this morning, that you, by the Spirit, would empower it, that you would make it useful, that you would make it helpful uh, to our hearts. God, we are just confessing this morning that we are utterly and totally dependent upon the Spirit to give us ears to truly hear, to give us eyes that can truly see. 
God, we don't want, as we listen, to rest in our own intellectual capacity. It is weak and inadequate in this regard. And so we pray that your spirit would do what your word says in Ephesians 1, that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart so that we can hear so much more clearly. I pray the same thing for myself as I speak your truth this morning, Lord. Uh, that I will be protected from sharing my opinions and that your truth, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing uh, between soul and spirit, that it would penetrate and do a beautiful, powerful work in our hearts. Uh, As we uh, lift up people in prayer this morning, Lord, we think of little baby Micah and the Argandizo family. Uh, This little one, only a few weeks old, has gone through incredible struggles. God, we're just asking today... Uh, that there would just be a demonstrable miracle of your hand at work in this child's life. Uh, God, that you would, number one, preserve Micah's life and that you would raise him up and make him strong. That is just very simply our wish and desire. I pray uh, over the parents, uh, over Jim and Patty, uh, God, that you would be shaping them through this circumstance that you have allowed to come into their lives. Uh, Just grant extreme favor uh, in that family. I pray also for Diana Kelly. Uh, Father, we love this lady, and we pray that your favor, your healing hand would be resting on her. I pray peace over her, God, over her family, uh, that there would just be amazing seasons of growth in the struggle that they are facing. We commit them to you. And also for the uh, uh, club family, as Richard is looking for new work, God, we pray that you will direct his steps and that you will provide. I pray that over the number of people that are listening who are in similar circumstances. Father, I pray over uh, those in our church family and in our community that are experiencing financial need. Uh, God, your resources are, resources are unlimited. And so we ask that your abundance would uh, meet the needs that are present, God. And then give us an opportunity to praise you and thank you for that work. Bless your word now. God, how desperately we need to hear from you. And uh, give us that blessing today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 27. Uh, Three weeks ago, we uh, looked at the issue of struggles and the benefit that God brings into our life from them. Uh, Today, the topic of my sermon is life together in the storm, exposing the attitude that threatens progress. Okay, life together in the storm, exposing the attitude that threatens our progress and growth in Christ. I want to begin reading in verse 27 of chapter 1. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been given to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. If there is any encouragement from being united with Christ, if there is any comfort from his love, any fellowship from the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, 
but in humility of mind, consider others better than yourself. Each of you should not look to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to pick up in this what is called a prison epistle. One of the themes that comes out often in chapter one is the fact that Paul speaks about being in chains. He actually calls them my chains. Uh, They are, as he uses the word chains, it's simply the, the symbol of the ultimate social distancing that Paul is experiencing as he is arrested and put into jail for the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. So he's writing to this church from a prison circumstance. Here's the question I want to ask for you. Paul's in chains. He's in prison. Is that good or is that bad? I think most of us would say that's bad. But the real question is this. Does God work in our seasons of struggle or does he simply aim aim to deliver us from them? I think that's a question that we as believers need to wrestle with. Should trials ever be embraced and counted as good? In verse 13 of chapter 1, Paul, I think, gives you a definitive response to that question. He says, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. That is, to the advantage of the cause of Christ. Paul did not resent his chains. Paul owned the opportunity that they represented He wanted to be delivered. That's clear as you read down a few verses. But he didn't want to waste the opportunity that he had to glorify Christ in a circumstance that he would never be in apart from the plan of God. Paul in this context is clearly in a storm. But he is a seasoned sailor. He has learned a valuable lesson. God works in and through the storms of our lives. He has gained a perspective of trust in a God who designed circumstances that we would never choose to take us to destinations we would never see. And here Paul is aiming to pass on to the church in Philippi that perspective. He wants them to know, yes, I'm in chains, and yes, I am fine with what God is doing in my life. There is a valuable lesson of trust. The other thing that we see is that Paul has learned the importance of life together in his Christian experience. And so as he's in prison, he's not focused on himself. Yes, he's in a season of struggle. Yes, he calls it chains, not jewelry. But Paul's hope in the storm has been strengthened by his thinking about the churches that he has ministered to. His thoughts about the brothers and sisters in Christ in Corinth, in Thessalonica, in Ephesus, in Philippi. Those thoughts are warming and encouraging his heart. And you'll see it early in the book. He literally reflects on the work that God is doing in them. And he's drawing encouragement from their progress in their walk with Christ. So I want to walk through this text. I'm just going to make four simple observations. The first one is this. Paul's example in the storm. So he's in prison. How's it going for Paul? What's he doing while he's there? What is his mindset? I want you to look at his example while he is in a season of ultimate social distancing. Now, I'm going to pick on a couple verses from chapter 1 just to try to help you to see Paul's attitude, his example in this season. Look at verse 3. He says, I thank my God... Every time I remember you 
in all my prayers, I always pray with joy for your partnership in the gospel. So immediately you can see in that text that Paul's deeply bought into relationship. Verse 7, he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I have you on my heart. So you start to sense that Paul is really bought into them in a very deep and affectionate way. Verse 8, he says, God can testify how I long for you with the affection of Christ. And in chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says this, therefore, my dear friends, and I, I hope as, as I give you that little kind of collage of, of, of the affections and emotions of Paul's heart, you realize that he is deeply committed to the progress of his brothers and sisters in Christ. He deeply cares for their encouragement and growth. The end of chapter 2 tells us about two heroes, two deeply important friends of Paul. One is named Timothy and one is named Epaphroditus. They're not lone wolves. As Paul reflects on them, he, he tells the church in Philippi how valuable they have been to him in the struggle. So what is Paul saying? As I'm going through this struggle, Timothy came alongside and it was just like you were there. Epaphroditus came alongside and risked his life for the cause of the gospel. So Paul, Paul's example is that I, even though he may be a robust personality, a, a, a large figure on the stage of the early church, he is not a lone wolf or a pious particle. He understands the incredible importance of life together. So we see this example that is kind of set out there in a very beautiful way. And here's the way this is challenging me. When I think of the Apostle Paul, when I read through his suffering in the book of 1 Corinthians, I am overcome. I'm overwhelmed by what this man went through. And in my mind, I start to think, there's something unique about Paul. He's durable. He's tough. And I, in my mind, I've concluded historically that Paul must be somewhat independent. How wrong this text tells me I am in my assessment of Paul. Paul was a man that understand, understood the value of life together. He was weary of the social distancing. He wanted to be with him. I can relate to that. Uh, I can't tell you I've been the perfect picture of a social distancer. Okay? I have the nature of a rule breaker. So there's a lot of me that resists and yet complies. Okay? I'm kind of in a conflicted position. Paul's in this position saying, I believe it is dangerous to be socially distanced from my brothers in Christ. It is having a negative effect. And it's fascinating if you're watching some of the news that one of the concerns, and it's a valid concern in this situation that we're in, there's a concern about the psychological, emotional impact of being isolated from people. Here's what, in my mind, here's what went off. Just the amazing insight of biblical truth. Paul, in this text, in a very emotive fashion, is talking about the importance of relating to and talking to and being with brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's, 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 it's fascinating to me that as we've gone through this season, at some level necessary, and everybody's got different opinions about how far we should go or not go, etc. I understand that. I get all of that. But the truth is this. There is a large concern in the realm of social uh, mental health, a large concern about the impact of being distant. Paul's holding up the same flag. He's saying, if you're isolated from brothers and sisters in Christ, I am deeply concerned about where you are spiritually, particularly if a storm 
hits. You're going to be found alone. And if you're alone, you're vulnerable. You're exposed. You're weak. Because we need each other. My, my thought on that is this. If Paul understood the value of vital relationships and needed them, then Tim Hoff most definitely needs them in his life. So that's Paul's example in the storm. I want us then to look at Paul's aspirational goal for the church in Philippi in the storms. This is a, a aspirational goal may not be a term that you've used much or heard before. An aspirational goal is this. It's it's different than simply a goal or a desire, okay, or a purpose in life. An aspirational goal is when you put aside normal constraints, when you put aside reasonable expectations and you start to dream or envision what could happen or what you would love to see happen. Okay, I believe most people go into marriage on the day of their wedding very aspirational. Okay, meaning they're somewhat disconnected from the reality of being with someone 24-7. And when they get into it, they realize, I need to adjust to having a goal rather than an aspiration. Okay, but here's what we believe as Christians. In Christ, by the power of the Spirit of God, we can be people that are aspirational. So as Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he's speaking of his aspirational desire for them. He knows they're people in progress. None of us have arrived. None of us are relational exactly where we should be, right? We all have room for progress. And so as Paul speaks to them, he talks about this aspirational goal. So here's a definition of aspiration. It is the aim of people who want to live at a higher level. Okay, so he looks at the church in Philippi, he says, that's good, that's good. In chapter 4, verse 2, Yodia and Syntyche are two names of two uh, gals in the church that were having a little bit of a tiff. And Paul says, hey, go help them out. They're not in line with the vision of life together. And he's calling them back. All right, so as Paul writes to this church, he wants them to, to, to strive to be like Christians. So look at verse 27. Paul says, whatever happens, that means no matter what the circumstance that you're in, in spite of how difficult, how hard, how persistent, how long, how enduring your trial is, he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, the conduct yourselves in a manner literally means act like a citizen of the colony. Okay, so Philippi was a colony of Rome. The word was literally used to say, act like a Roman citizen. And then there was pride in being a Roman citizen. Paul's saying to the church, hey Philippi, inasmuch as you are Roman and should live up to that expectation, you are Christian. You are believers in Christ. And you should be living like citizens of the kingdom of God who have been deeply impacted by the grace of God. And then he's going to tell them how that aspirational goal can be achieved or how we day by day, step by step, move towards that aspirational goal. Here's what he says in verse 27. He says, live, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ then... Whenever I come and see you or only hear about you in my social distancing, my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, 
contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way. Okay, that's Paul's aspiration for them. I'm not going to break it down for you. He says, I want to hear that you are standing together, striving like one. Okay, now what is that? That is a picture of being deeply and powerfully unified. And the idea of striving as one literally carries the concept of holding your post. It's, it's, it's a term that's used for a military person in conflict, not fleeing or deserting or going AWOL. In spite of how hard it gets, I'm going to stay in here, I'm going to hold my position because I'm part of a team. See, the person that goes AWOL is an individual. The person that stays and fights is part of an army. And so as Paul writes them, he says, I want to hear that you are standing together, striving like one. That's the first aspiration. Now, here's the picture that comes to my mind. A few months ago, I was watching the, uh, I think it was the International Rugby Championships. I am not a big fan of rugby. I admire the discipline and the grit and the struggle of it. I have no idea what's going on when I'm watching a rugby match. Okay, and I think it's called a match, not a game. I believe I'm correct on that. Uh, it is an ultimate team sport. As I was watching it, uh, I think it was back in January, I was watching, there was a scrum. That's when they put the, they, they get all these guys lining up, 10 maybe on a side, and then some of the flankers going out. And the way that they organized themselves into a unit is what captured my attention. It's almost inappropriate how they do it, okay? They get down in a position, the first row gets down, hands and knees, second row stands behind them, and every man is reaching across, he's grabbing the shorts of his, uh, of his uh, teammate, and what they're doing is forming an impenetrable force that will allow them to make progress. Uh, they're pushing on each other's backsides, all kinds of stuff that I won't even talk about. But what I observed as I watched it is, I saw big masculine men with ace bandages, braces on their knees, you know, broken bones, all kinds of, you know, stuff they would use to numb the pain so they could stay in the fight. As I looked at it, I thought of the church. I thought of people who are bruised and battered, but still in the game. And I thought, what a beautiful picture of standing together. The purpose of all the interlocking of arms and grabbing shirts and shorts and everything is simply to be unified. It expresses a shameless desire to assist one another. And I love that picture. Paul says, I want to hear that you're standing like that. Together, you look like one unit. Because that is a, an imposing force. For rugby players, life is a team sport. And for believers, life is a team sport. It is never meant to be done alone. The worst thing you can have on a rugby team is a hero. What you need are regular people who are deeply committed to a common goal. Now, Paul says, as a result of that unified standing, that you're beside me, you're beside me, I'm good. You desert, I'm out of here. Notice what he says. He says, uh, let me just give you the verse. Uh, verse 28. All right, you're, you're contending as one without being frightened. The idea of being frightened is to be intimidated. Here's what Paul's saying. When you stand together, fear has to flee. 
Fear is weakened. It is diminished. The word here literally is the word that refers to a timid horse. Now, there are horses that are bold for battle. Okay, the book of Job talks about that. They don't run from the sound of war. But there are horses called racehorses. And what they do is they run very well. And they tend to be timid. That is, things can set them off. Okay, that's the idea of the word picture here. Okay, uh, an animal that is quickly intimidated and quick to flee in self-preservation. Paul says, because you're standing together, you will not be, verse 28, you will not be frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Okay, now that statement, those who oppose you, assumes that something is true in Christian living, doesn't it? It assumes that we, as believers, will face at times opposition because of the convictions that we hold dear in our hearts. So that we should not be surprised by the struggle that comes, nor should we be alarmed by it. Alarmed meeting, set to flight. Okay? I was down in Philadelphia last Wednesday uh, visiting a wood shop that a friend of mine owns. And uh, about 30 seconds before we got there, there was an explosion out in front of the shop. And my friend's co-worker was, was spread eagle on the ground. Okay? Hey, this kid grew up in the hood in Philadelphia. He said, I thought I heard a gunshot. Uh, a car had hit the... Uh, telephone pole out in front of the building, destroyed, the, totaled the car, ripped a big chunk of wood out of the telephone pole. The sound caused my timid friend to hit the ground all fours. When I walked in, the guy that owns the shop was laughing hysterically because he said, did you see what happened? I said, no. He said, there was a loud boom on the street and Mike hit the ground. Like they're just flattened out, like looking around in total fear, intimidated by what was happening, largely because he was in the parking lot alone. Felt vulnerable. Okay? I believe the reason that many times as believers we panic when trials come, when the storm rages, is because we are not connect- connected to the God ordained means of stability. And that is the work of God flowing through my brothers and sisters in Christ into my life. So Paul's aspirational goal is that they would be standing together, not startled. And then verse 27, he makes an interesting statement. I'm just going to touch this real quick. He says, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, second half of verse 28, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. Fascinating statement. Okay, what Paul is saying is your your capacity to stand in the face of opposition says something about your walk with God. Your standing together, your affection for one another, your proximity shamelessly to one another says something about something that happened inside of you. Do you remember what Jesus says in John 13? He says, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you love one another, if you're deeply committed to each other, that love for one another is proclaiming. Now, when I was a kid uh, attending church, my parents took me to a Bible preaching church. We did something called the wordless book. Okay, the wordless book, as I recall it, now my wife is sitting here so she could correct me on this, but in the wordless book that I remember, there were colors. Uh, I remember black being the color for sin. 
I remember red being the color for the blood of Christ that forgives. I mean, I remember green being a picture of growth in Christ. And I remember gold being a picture of the streets of gold in heaven. Okay? It's a wordless book. If you give it to someone who doesn't have a little bit of knowledge of what's going on in relationship to Jesus and personal faith, they would not understand what that book means. But that book says something to people that have some understanding of it. The same thing is true of our lives as believers. Paul, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, our lives are letters written and read by all men. How you live in seasons of struggle says something about the God you serve. And it says something devastating or something exalting. All right, may we as a church family so love one another, so draw near to one another that our response to struggle is proclaiming there's a demonstration of a deep anchored faith in God that attracts attention, that causes people to say, what am I hearing from this person's life as I watch them in the storm? What's the message that they're proclaiming in their response to struggles together? It's interesting because verse 28, the word that you could translate literally is your response to troubles is a sign. It's literally an omen of the, what it does is this. To people that are rejecting God, rejecting faith in Christ, the way you live and your walk with God is validating the truth that they are trying to ignore. Does that make sense? Okay, so it's it's a powerful picture when you get around people that genuinely love each other and respond well to struggles. Get your attention. It's not normal. It's God. So may God help us to, to embrace this idea of life together so that the words of Christ will be fulfilled in our lives. By this, your love for one another, they'll know that you are my disciples so that your living together, your value of vital relationships becomes proclaiming. It's beautiful. And what I love is that's a kind of witnessing that to me is not intimidating, nor is it easy. Okay? Because my tendency is to live in isolation. I I have a conviction about vital relationships, but I have a tendency. My tendency is to get self-focused. Is to think about me and mine, us and me and mine, us and ours, not them and theirs. And this text calls me out of that broken mindset. You know, this week I had the privilege of spending time with a young man. His name is Mike. He's in the Special Forces. He's a Green Beret. Attended uh, high school with my daughters. Kind of reconnected with him this week. And he was just sharing with me, uh, I don't know, if you've ever had conversations with Special Forces people, it's frustrating because I have a lot of questions and they're not allowed to answer them. Okay, I just find that, like, where were you last? Not in the U.S. Okay, all right, that's not real helpful. <laughs> uh, what gun do you carry? Can't talk about that. How do you call on those planes to do bombings? Can't talk about that either. I said, well, tell me about how the team functions. He said, okay, I'll tell you that. Because I knew I was preaching on this topic. And I was curious about how this group of 12, he's in a, he's in a, 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 a team of 12 men uh, called a unit. In that unit, there are six roles. Okay, things like weapon specialist, communication specialist, command, on and on it goes. So he said, my role is I am a weapons specialist. He says, in every group, there is redundancy. 
Every group has two weapon specialists, has two communication specialists, two medics. I asked the question why, I knew the answer. Because every part of the team is crucial to the success of the mission. If one goes down, we got another. Okay, because it would be disheartening to a team if the medic went down and there was only one. Same thing is true in the church. Folks, here's how you need to look at your church life. And I think Paul Tripp is the guy that says this. He said, you need to see in, the, in your relationship to church that you are not a consumer. Someone who comes into the body of Christ to get, and if I don't get what I want, I move on to the next church grocery store to do my shopping. No, you need to understand that in the body of Christ, you are needy, meaning you come with needs. And there are things that you need to get right, and there are people that can help you. But you come as one who is needed by the grace of God. Meaning, I do not come to church just to get. I come to make a contribution from my life into the life of others. That is at the heart of understanding what we mean as a church when we say God changes lives through vital relationships. A a disconnected Christian is a vulnerable Christian and probably weak and anemic because God never desired or designed for you to succeed in isolation. He, he wants you to, in a, in, a, in a very real way, be part of the body of Christ. All right? Be needed and come needy. Okay? That's the balance that I think we have to strive for. So my challenge out of that idea of Paul's aspirational goal is that we would value life together and be transformed by it into a group that stands as one. Now, As I say that, I understand that there are things that threaten that kind of unity. If there's one thing Satan doesn't want, he doesn't want a unified church. So he will spend much of his resources on trying to divide the body of Christ. I fear that even with the coronavirus. I fear people wanting to argue their point in a way that's divisive or hurtful to others. It doesn't show respect for their brothers or sister in Christ. Even as we come back together, there's a lot of different opinions about things, right? There's a lot of different ways to look at things. Your experience, if you've lost a loved one during this, you've got a different perspective than I have. I'm not privileged to have that insight that you have through that experience. So I need to be gentle and loving and understanding of where you're coming from as we look forward, Lord willing, in the month of June of perhaps starting to talk about getting back together. Because getting back together is important, but we need to do it in a way that is wise and not be divisive about it. Okay, so Paul understands that as he calls people to get in rugby format in a scrum, he understands that there are some people that aren't going to get along with other people. And he's going to point that out. He's calling them to this aspiration, life together. But as he does it, in the back of his mind, a bell's ringing. There's an enemy of that. There's a tendency in every person that fights against that being together because we'd rather be prominent. Our flesh loves to be exalted. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul exposes the tendency. He does it in an interesting way. He first does a test. Are you a true believer? That's Paul's goal in verse 1 of chapter 2. And then he's going to come out of that true believer status, that true picture, into a discussion about one issue that threatens to undermine 
that, 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 that tends to corrode the bond that we have in Jesus Christ. So watch what he says in verse 1. He says, if you have any encouragement in Christ, or from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then, if you fit that category, then you, believer, make my joy complete. By being of one mind. He goes on to this picture of, of, of the mindset of unity that's pictured in the, in, the, in the scrum. Okay? So, I'm going to give you just a quick summary of verse 1. Paul's saying this. Does the thought of union with Jesus, his words and his work, does it amaze you? Does it prompt a sense of gratitude that I belong to Jesus? Does it ever cause you to pull your car over when you're listening to a song that exalts Christ and say, I just need to listen. I need to thank God. Is there a sense of passion and amazement as you think about the work of Christ? And then he says this, and I I love the way he says this. He says, is there any comfort from his love? Does your knowledge of God's love affect you? And, and, I think the word that I would use here is, is the love of Christ for you palpable? Do you know it? Do you experience it? Do you feel it? Not simply have you participated in it, but is there a sense in which you know that in the experience of your life that is provoking stability and a love for brothers and sisters? Next one's powerful. He says, if there's any fellowship with the Spirit, and I automatically think of Romans 5. The Spirit of God is sent into your hearts to shed abroad the love of Christ. Is there a sense that the Spirit of God has taken up residence in my life and is changing me? Do I hear that I belong to him and that he belongs to me? That's what Paul's saying. Does my heart want to cry out, Papa, Daddy? Do I hear him saying, my son, my daughter? Last one in verse 1. He says, if there's any tenderness and compassion, if I ask you what was Paul like, I'm going to guess that you're going to lean on the robust, durable, strong, little intimidating side. But I would, I would counter that with Philippians. I would tell you that in Philippians, there's the other side. You've got this strong man who can, who can get in the fight, who can stand firm. But I also see a man who knows tenderness and compassion. And as he talks about Timothy, he says, I long for him like he was my son. So there's something in this massively intellectual brain that also has a heart for people, that gets in touch with deep affections, and it's transforming how he begins to communicate under the inspiration of the Spirit the truth of God. So what Paul's saying is, if you're a true believer, if you have these evidences at varying levels, and I understand this, we all at various times have stronger impulses of those affections in our hearts, right? But Paul's saying, if you have that, meaning if you're a true believer, then he says, make my joy complete. It's powerful. Paul's sitting in prison saying, can you do me a favor? Can you act in a way that will breathe life back into my weary soul? Will you act in a way that brings those affections back for me? Watch what he says in verse 2. 
He says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. It's a call to unity. It's a powerful call to get on the same page. Put aside the things that don't really matter. And, and, and get a heart, get an understanding of what Jesus Christ has done for you. And let that be the, the truth that binds us together and says, you belong to me and I belong to you because of God's work in our lives. If you know what it is to be in Christ, Paul says, then I have a warning for you. And here's the warning in the text. And I, I, I shared this with my men's Bible study the other week. Uh, if I say that every biblical text has a fallen creature focus, okay? That's a phrase that Brian Chappell developed as he studied the word of God. What he means is this. As you read through the Bible and you, you read through the inspired scriptures, you understand that God wrote a book that aims to exhort, challenge, and change your life. So whenever you study through a portion of scripture, when I studied through this text, what's the main challenge? The main challenge is life together matters, but there is something in all of us that aims to destroy it, okay? I believe this text is written to say unity is the most beautiful demonstration of the cross of Christ that the church can give to the world around it. But there is something in every believer's heart that if we don't identify and kill it, it will destroy what God is trying to do through us. Okay, and Paul's anticipating in this text a natural, rather strong weakness that we have. So 2 Timothy 4, let me just see if I can illustrate this idea that the Bible aims to exhort, transform, and change your life. 2 Timothy 4, my job as a pastor, our job as a pastoral team is to preach the word, I'm quote directly, Paul says, Timothy, preach the word, be instant when it's popular and when it's unpopular, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Okay, so every time the word of God is preached, it's different than teaching. When the word of God is preached, the aim is an exhortation, it's a correction, and a call to change and hope. So Paul says, Timothy, every time you share it, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Okay, so this text has an aim. It aims to point out what threatens to destroy unity in the body of Christ. It confronts a common tendency that emerges in the storms. My tendency, and I'm just telling you for me and from this text, my tendency is to focus on my self-preservation and my satisfaction. That's my tendency. It's to think about me getting out of my circumstance. It's to become very uh, inward in focus. Paul confronts that. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, verse 3, or vain conceit, but in humility of mind, consider others more deserving than yourself. Now, I'm going to say this. He's not saying believers are people that ideally don't think about themselves at all. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, don't simply think about yourself. Don't simply focus on the needs of your family, of you and yours. Think about them and theirs. That's the heart of biblical Christianity, that I'm not just focused on my own spiritual health, but I'm thinking about the spiritual health of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul did not forget that he needed the input of others. 
Paul did not forget that the believers in Philippi deeply needed encouragement. So in his storm, in his struggle, in his chains, what's he doing? He's writing out a letter that is full of joy. Because he felt responsible to let them know that though the storm is raging, the joy of God is abundant. Okay, that's powerful. That's transformational. So yeah, church in Philippi, you're going through the same struggle I have. It's similar, but different. I want you to know that there is a good God who is for you. And when you stand together along with the work of God's spirit, you can do amazing things. See, this is hopeful as a text. Spent a little time around our grandchildren uh, in recent weeks. I've made an observation that goes three generations deep, meaning it's in my wife and I, it's in our kids, it's in the grandkids. The observation is this. You don't have to teach people to be selfish. You don't. If I call my daughter on FaceTime and Ava's on the phone, guess what I hear in the background? I hear the two-year-old saying to her mom, Poppy, Poppy, Poppy. And then when I get on the phone with her, she's saying, Mimi, 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 like, I want you, and now I want her, and I'm in control of the circumstance. And if, if Addison's on the phone, Ava's saying, I want to talk to Poppy. I want to talk to Poppy. There, there's no deference in toddlers. There's no affection for, uh, for each other. There is this tendency that we as parents, through corrective measures, through training, try to help them to understand that the other person matters too. That you're not the only person on the planet that God made. And that they matter. And that they deserve a shot to talk to their grandparents on the phone. Here's what most people say to me. So, you know, my kids weren't that way until they went to school. And I'm like, wow, you are naive if you believe that. See, the problem isn't your child. And this is true for most people in the church. The church would be fine if it was just me. Well, first of all, it wouldn't be a church. And secondly, it would not be fine. Because the tendency that Paul is confronting is common. So the text doesn't aim to beat you up. It aims to identify something that's present. And you need to root out this this inward focus, this self-centeredness. In the garden of my life, the weeds of selfishness seem to thrive. And when they thrive, they choke out everything that has virtue in my life. We should fear this. I think that's Paul's aim here. Root it out. Unleashed from the restraint of biblical truth and a clear view of the cross, I am capable of an embarrassing level of selfishness. I have had friends pointed out to me when they've been with me in a group context who have later called me out and said, that was selfish. And I did not say, well, praise God, thank you. (laughs) My first response is selfish. But I did later go back to that person and say, you know what, that's true. That's true. I need some herbicide. Paul offers some herbicide for the weeds of self-focus and selfishness that creep up in our lives, particularly in the storms. Study the cross of Christ. Understand the humility of Jesus. Understand that he, he became a man and lowered himself to become the lowest slave. Understand that he came to die, even death on a cross. Understand that the Savior went into the storm that you deserve so that there he could bear the consequence, the just wrath of God for your sin and bring you into his family. Folks, it's through the storm 
that Christ rescued you. Through the struggle. And it's through the struggle that he will most often transform you into his image. To make a difference in the world around you. Study the cross because you cannot. One of my professors used to say, you cannot stand beside the cross of Christ and be proud. You can't. So if you say, you know what, Pastor Tim, I am wrestling with pride. I am wrestling with an abundance of selfishness. Get to the cross of Christ. Listen to songs about the cross. Read text about the cross and let God begin to change your heart. Verse 5 is the herbicide to kill the weeds of selfishness. Paul says, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus. Because when you adopt the mindset of Jesus, when you allow that to soak into your soul by the power of the Spirit of God, you will be different. You will be different. You will look at family members that irritate you and you'll begin to love them because you know Christ loved a rebel like you. You look at your kids in a different way because you realize as you discipline them that they are, they are receiving the discipline that you also deserve. Because you're a fallen man. You're a fallen woman. In your workplace, you'll be different. You won't expect perfection from people. You walk in humility. You won't be easily put off, easily perturbed because someone didn't respect you like you want to be respected. Let the gospel soak in. Understand that you are loved by God, chosen as a child of God if you know him personally because Christ went into the storm that you deserve on the cross, bore the wrath of God that you deserve for your sin so that you, a rebel, could be received as a son or daughter of God by simple faith and repentance in the name of Jesus. May God help us to remember that our salvation is entirely secured by Jesus and we can never be proud of the progress that we begin to experience. My concluding thought is simple. Don't be discouraged in the journey towards selflessness okay here's the truth the goal for all of us is progress okay it's progress not perfection if the goal is perfection i would resign today from my ministry at this church the goal is progress the measuring stick that every believer should be using is 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 have i experienced some level of forward movement in my walk with christ Am I seeing a change? The call of Christ is not to reformation. Jesus doesn't say, get your act together and then come join the team. He says, join the team and we'll help you get your act together. We'll train you. You will help you grow. That's what a church is to do. My other thought this morning is social distancing is hard on your spiritual life. And I mean that in the truest way. I mean that in the current circumstance. It's sadly true for many people, even when it's not mandated. We tend to love our own life. We tend to pursue our own pleasure, our own desires, at the expense of everybody else. You need to remember that you are needy. You need what the church can give you. You need what the people of God were created and gifted by the Spirit of God to pour into your life. But I need your gifts poured into my life. So I'm needed Here's my gift from God, to share God's word. That's what God called me to do. He called you to do something else. There are people in this audience right now that I know are watching, and your life is a deep encouragement to me because of your love for Christ, your persistence, your service. 
so that when we come together, yeah, I can say that honestly with this recording team this morning, that there are people sitting right here that make life more enjoyable because they are committed to the value of life together. They believe vital relationships truly transform and proclaim Christ better than anything else. So here's my closing thought. Don't underestimate what we, by the grace of God, can be together. Not what we can be alone. Don't underestimate. Don't undervalue. Don't sacrifice what we can be by the grace of God. Father, help us. Help us, Lord Jesus, to make Jesus made known powerfully in our community by selfless unity. God, help us in the storms, in the struggles, to understand that life together is vital and it is proclaiming. It is exalting and glorifying Jesus. So, Lord, I thank you for this truth this morning. Your word is so beautiful. It is so helpful. Thank you that it focuses on my weakness and helps me change by the power of the Spirit. Father, I pray that if there is someone listening this morning who has never trusted Jesus Christ, as the Lord and Savior. Father, my, my simple prayer is that where they're sitting right now, they would just simply say, God, I am a selfish rebel, guilty. And I believe that Jesus Christ, your son, hung in my place on Calvary's cross, bore the storm of your just wrath against my sin so that I would not have to. And today, where I sit, I am crying out. I am saying truthfully before God, God, I repent of my sin. I confess it. I am a rebel. But I believe that your son took my place on the cross. I want to know, trust, and believe in him today. Father, pour your blessing over our church family, over our community. Use us as one to glorify and exalt Jesus in the storm that we are facing. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.